Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. We have three more weeks in Romans. Get through Romans 15, 13 on the last Sunday of the year. And then we'll pick back up where we left off in June of next year. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Hippocratic Oath, an ethical oath taken by physicians for centuries. A commitment to do what? A commitment to help their patients by all means possible, and also an oath to do no harm. In our passage this morning, Paul is calling the church, if you will, to take an oath, to help, and to do no harm. It's not an ethic that pertains to medicine. It's an ethic that pertains to our life together in the church, very specifically to the way that we exercise our Christian freedom on third-level issues that we talked about last week. If you missed that sermon, I'm not going to cover that ground again. You can go back and listen to that. It has to do with doing no harm as we exercise our Christian freedom in the church. Paul says to live out your Christian freedom by not harming others, by not doing damage to them. But this call to not harm, to do no damage, we need to understand it, situate it, if you will, within the larger issue that was at play in the church at Rome, the issue of division. The big issue in the church at Rome was division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We've said it before, but it may bear repeating again today. The historical context is that there were a number of Jews, even though a small number, but a number of Jews in the church who had only recently returned to Rome after being exiled from Rome by the emperor. And now they're back in Rome, but not only that, they're back in church after being gone for some time. And now that they're back in church, a tension between Jews and Gentiles becomes quite plain. A tension that is so bad that they can't even come together and eat a meal together. Get this picture in your mind. They're in the fellowship hall if they had fellowship halls in those days. But there's no fellowship in the hall. And one of the reasons that that is the case is because they can't even agree about what it is that they are going to eat at this potluck that they are having in the fellowship hall. The Gentile Christians on one side of the room, they took Jesus' teaching at face value. They believed all foods were clean and therefore they had no misgivings about eating meat or drinking wine. 
Paul calls them the strong. But the Jewish Christians, this minority in the church who had only recently come back into this church, they were still hung up on dietary restrictions within the Mosaic law. They had no confidence that it was okay to eat meat and to drink wine. Paul calls them the weak. This tension between Jews and Gentiles that becomes so clear to us when we get to Romans 14, as we look back and think of all that we've seen so far in this book, we, we see that this tension that it has been below the surface throughout Paul's whole letter. I mean, think of the way the book begins. It's about the gospel of God. And what does Paul teach us about the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. And then what does he do as he progresses in his exposition of the gospel? He makes it very clear that both Jew and Greek are in desperate need of the gospel because they are both sinners who will certainly face the wrath and the judgment of God apart from Christ. But not only that, both Jew and Gentile are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, Him and Him alone. Paul has been working so hard in this letter to show us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He's been working so hard to show that in Christ, despite the differences between Jews and Gentiles or different backgrounds or different preferences, despite the differences between us and the church, that we are, in fact, one in Christ. He's driving at this because he knows that although they are one in Christ, they are divided in the church. The strong, they're on that one side of the fellowship hall with their pork chops and their cabernet while the weak are on the other side with their matzah bread, divided. But there was more than division in the church. Paul sees a real danger that is present here of the strong Christians doing harm, doing damage to the faith of the weak Jewish Christians. And so, in our passage this morning, he makes a direct appeal to the strong. It's as if he's saying, if there's going to be peace in this church, the strong will need to make the first move. If there is going to be a stop put to the harm that is being done, he will have to start with the strong. And so with that context in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 13. Therefore, he's picking up on what he said in verses 1 to 12. Summarizing it, concluding this thought. Therefore, let us not 
pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not done from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage is divided into three parts. There are a lot of commands, but there are three commands that emerge or um, rise up to the top that help give cohesion to the passage. The first is this overarching command to do no harm in verses 13 to 15. But then The next two commands, they help us begin to understand how to apply this command in the life of the church. So three main commands that I want to highlight. Let's begin with the first in verses 13 to 15. This is how I would summarize it. Don't let your freedom harm your brother or your sister's faith. Your freedom on these third level issues issues with food and drink here. Don't exercise that freedom in such a way that it does harm to one another's faith or to the weaker brother's faith in the church. The first part of verse 13 is a summary of what we learned last week. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So he's tying up where he's been. We're not going to look down on Weaker brothers and sisters in the Christ, in, in, in the church, who don't hold to the views that we do. We're also not going to be judgmental. The weak are not going to be judgmental towards the strong. Neither of us are to pass judgment on one another on third level issues because it causes division. That's 13a, the first part of the verse. But then in the next part of the verse, he transitions and he uses a play on words. The word decide is from the same Greek word as judge. So he's saying, don't judge one another, but instead 
make a different kind of judgment. Judge, decide that you will never cause your brother or your sister to stumble. And how would the strong make the weak stumble? I think it is by somehow, Paul's not clear how, but somehow pressuring them, maybe with their words or maybe with their example, but somehow pressuring them to violate their conscience. Look at verse 14. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So here Paul, I believe, is appealing to a person's conscience. If a person believes something is wrong, that's their conscience speaking, and to go against conscience is to sin. In fact, verse 23 says, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So if you believe something is wrong and do it anyway, you are sinning in what you are doing. So how would the strong lead the weak to violate their conscience? In this situation, like I said, I think it would be through pressuring them through words or example to Come on, come on over here and, and eat these pork chops that we have. Have a, have a glass of wine. I mean, everybody here is doing it. I mean, keep in mind, this everyone is doing it doesn't just apply to the party on Friday night. Here it is being applied to something that happens in church. Calling somebody to act against their conscience, it's harmful. And we shouldn't do it. At this point, I think it's important to make a qualification about our conscience. Paul is not saying that our conscience is an infallible guide. He is saying that it's a guide and that it's good. But he's not saying that it's an infallible guide. It's not as though he is saying what Jiminy Cricket says in Pinocchio. Always let your conscience be your guide. For example, if your conscience is leading you to do something or prompting you to do something that is clearly prohibited in God's word, you shouldn't let your conscience guide you on this point. I think this is an issue in our day. I think it's right. I'm fine with it. So therefore, I'll go with it. But friends, if your conscience is telling you to do something wrong, that's not right. In other words, your conscience can't make something that is wrong right. For example, if your conscience says, I'm okay with sleeping with my girlfriend outside of marriage, that doesn't make it right. God's word is clear that it is wrong. This is the way one pastor puts it. Your conscience can't make something that's wrong right, but it can make something that is right wrong. And that was the issue at the church of Rome with the weak 
eating meat. There was nothing inherently wrong with it, but the weak thought it was wrong, and so therefore for them to eat it was wrong. And so it was wrong for the strong to lead the weak to stumble, to cause them to violate their conscience. This was doing them harm. In fact, Paul uses stronger language than that. He says it was destroying them. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. What's going on in this verse? I think Paul is saying Christ died for that brother, for that sister in Christ. And what's one of the effects of knowing that Christ died for our sins? It's that we would have a clear conscience before God. That we could say with wholehearted certainty, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not based off of what I do, but based off of what Christ has done for me. I have that confidence that there's no condemnation for me. But when the strong lead the weak to act against their conscience, they can no longer have that assurance. Look at verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. I don't think this is saying that they're condemned by God. I think it's saying they're self-condemned. They feel condemned. Like there's no way what I'm doing is right before God. And if a person persists in that, of doing what they know is wrong, but doing it anyway, it does damage to their faith. It sears their conscience. It does them Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you engage in an activity that you believe to be wrong because other people are doing it? And all the while, you're like, I feel gross. I'm not doing that which is right. Over the course of time, that will do horrible damage to a person's faith. And so what Paul is saying to the strong is really important. He's made it clear that they have liberty to eat meat, to drink wine. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing in itself is unclean. He knows that. What he's saying is this. I want you to hear this. He's saying, you're right. You're right on the issue but you're wrong in the way that you're going about promoting the issue. You're wrong in the way that you are flouting your freedom before your brother. You're right on the issue. But being right on a theological issue is never a justification for being unloving. Let me say that again. Being right 
on a theological issue is never a justification for being unloving toward another brother or sister in Christ. Christ gave up His life to save sinners. Surely the church can give up our liberty out of love for our brothers or sisters in Christ. That's what Paul's teaching here. I think it's relatively clear. What's less clear is how these verses apply to us today. To be honest, I've had a hard time with this question. And the reason I have a hard time is the greatest danger in preaching is actually an application. The goal is to be faithful to what the Scriptures say and to not go beyond what the Scriptures say. Pastors go wrong most of the time when they start applying what the Scriptures say. And it's not abundantly clear to me all of the ways that this situation applies to our situation. Last week it was clear. Don't let third level issues divide you in the church. But how do we lead others to stumble in the church today? How do the strong lead the weak to stumble? I mean, often in our day, it's those who have a weak conscience on certain issues that are actually shouting the loudest alarm to others. So it's complicated. This passage is regularly used to talk about drinking alcohol. And the way that it's used is people will say, if this person, you know, they have, they have a weakness with alcohol. Therefore, we shouldn't drink around them. I mean, they, they may end up getting drunk. They may fall off the wagon and end up back in alcoholism. And I, and I would agree with that, that we should give deference to people who struggle with alcohol in the way that we may use it. But I don't think that's the way that Paul's using the word weak here. He's not talking about a propensity towards moral failure. He is talking about a person's faith. He is talking about what a person believes about something and that to engage in that, not just to engage in it wrongly, but to engage in it at all is wrong. And so if we were to apply it to alcohol, which we can, it would be to apply it to somebody who thinks that it's always wrong for a Christian to drink. Even though the Bible doesn't make that clear. And if a person's in that position that they think it's wrong for a person not just to abuse alcohol, but to drink at all, they shouldn't do it. They should not do it. And other Christians who don't hold that same conviction should not live in such a way that they would encourage someone to do that and thus violate their conscience and sin. This passage is describing the damage that happens when Christians gather together, and that could apply to things like drinking alcohol in homes. I mean, we don't drink alcohol here in this church. I mean, in here, in this, in this space. But I think the main thing Paul is talking about is the things that divide us when we gather for worship. And so the question is still lingering in my mind. 
How does this principle apply to that? Maybe you have some ideas. Maybe you can talk about that in your community groups or over lunch with your family. For now, I want to move on to an application that I think is very clear within this passage. An application that if we put into practice, if we get it and apply it, I think it will help us with all of the things that we don't understand and it will help us to do the main thing that Paul is calling the church to do within this passage. And what is that? It is to prioritize kingdom priorities. To make the main thing the main thing. Look at verse 16. A little background on this point. He says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. I think one of the things that's implied in this is that Paul wants the weak eventually to speak of that which is good, that which is permissible in God's sight as good. I actually think Paul wants the weak to change their view. He's not denying that the strong have freedom to eat. And he is even, I believe, saying that eventually the weak's consciences, if I can put it this way, ought to be calibrated by the word of God so that they can therefore live with a clear conscience in line, of, in line with God's word. I think Paul wants that. But he's saying it's wrong to push the right things in the wrong way and thus do harm. That's the point that we've already made. But now he comes and makes a different point. And I think he says, there's a better way. There's a better way to go about this issue within the church. Prioritize kingdom priorities. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. The weak need to come to see that, but so do the strong. Eating and drinking aren't the main thing. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the main thing. The kingdom of God, as we've been learning in the book of Romans, what is the righteousness of God is revealed to the church. It's revealed to us in the gospel. The goal is that those who are under the wrath of God, who are guilty of sin, would be declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's where this whole book has been going to establish that we need to be made right with God through the righteous work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And if that happens, then we now have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. But not only that, because we are one body, we have peace with one another. Right with God, peace with God, peace with one another, and not only that, joy. 
knowing that those who are right with God are safe and secure, that they have a hope that our salvation is eternal and secure. That hope grants us joy, a great joy. This is the main thing, the priority of the kingdom. And I think what Paul is driving at is when there are divisions in the body over minor things, the best thing to do is prioritize the main thing. The person who prioritizes the kingdom and the gospel, the implications of the gospel, that person, as Paul says in verse 18, they serve Christ. And are acceptable to God and approved by men. That's the thing. What should our life be about in view of God's mercies? A life fully surrendered to God. If we have been saved from the slavery of sin, what should our life be about? Service. Unto Christ. And when we prioritize service to Christ, we're acceptable to God, but we will also be acceptable in the eyes or approved by others. This peace with God and with others, it should affect the way that we live in the church. So in verse 19, Paul says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, verse 20, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. If we have peace with God and peace with one another through the gospel, then we should pursue what makes for peace. If we love one another in the body and are walking in love, then we should seek to build them up and not tear them down. We will build not destroy the work of God. What is the work of God? God is doing a work in the church. He's building a people together for himself. We shouldn't tear this down through fighting over third level issues. But God is also doing a work. Get this. If the person you are sitting next to, if they are a Christian, God is doing a work in them. And he's doing it at his own speed. Not according to your speed. You shouldn't tear them down by pressuring them to get where you are, sinning against their conscience, doing harm to their faith. We have an oath in the church, friends, to do no harm, to help, and to cultivate health, both in the body and in one another's lives. We need to prioritize fellowship over our freedom. I know that that is a countercultural way to think in this country, but if we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we will do what the king of heaven did. Lay down our freedoms for the sake of others. So prioritize the priorities of the kingdom. One more word here before we move on to the next point. 
about to us specifically as a church. To a church that loves to study the Bible. I'm really glad that you do. But can I just say that while it is good to seek what the Bible says on every issue that relates to our lives, that that does not give us a license to be a jerk for Jesus. If you want to win your brother over to a different way of thinking, that's fine if you hope they come to see that. That they would come to the right view on third level issues, the best way to do that is by prioritizing first level issues. One of our distinctives as a denomination is to major on the majors, to minor on the minors. That doesn't mean that the minors don't matter. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't discuss, even debate in the appropriate settings with love, these issues. But we shouldn't divide. We shouldn't make others feel dumb when they don't feel the same way that we do. And we certainly should do no harm. Seek to not damage. We're under oath to pursue what makes for peace, to build, to not tear down, to love in view of God's mercy. The final command helps us know how to do this in such a way that we're not just throwing our freedoms out the window. It is this, privatize your preferences or privatize your freedoms. Look at verse 22. Paul calls the strong to keep the faith that they have between themselves and God. What's he saying here? I don't think he's saying, like so many in our day, don't talk about religion in public. Don't talk about politics. Don't, you know, just don't, don't talk about those things. He's certainly not saying keep your own faith in the Lord private. I mean, he's not saying don't share the gospel with anyone. So what is he saying? I think he's saying that we keep our faith on third-level issues, our beliefs about things like food and drink, we keep them to ourselves. We don't flout them in public places where our brothers and sisters are who don't share those convictions and who may actually be tempted to violate their conscience. We don't put explicit or even implicit pressure on them to violate their consciences and sin against God. That doesn't mean that we can't ever do something that they don't like. It just means that we're careful about when we do that and how we do that. The weak don't dictate the way that we live our lives in every sphere of our lives. Otherwise, the weak would tyrannize the church with their scruples. So Paul says something that we don't generally say in our homes or in our church. He's saying it's okay in this situation if your public behavior is different from your private behavior. Again, on a third-level issue, not on first-level issues. It's okay if you keep your third-level views and practices to yourself if it might cause your brother to stumble. This is not hypocrisy. 
This is not saying that we can sin in secret as long as no one sees. That is not at all what Paul is saying. He is simply saying out of sensitivity to your weaker brothers or sisters in Christ, you may be careful about when and how you exercise your freedoms. He goes on to say, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Happy is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What is Paul saying here? It could be that it's simply a more blessed way to live, to have your conscience aligned with God's word and then be able to live according to that. As opposed to the person with a weak conscience that they're, they're always second guessing themselves. It, it's, it's a better way to live your life if your conscience is aligned with God's word and you live that way. That could be what he's saying. But he also could be saying, it's blessed, you'll be happy if the way that you're living your life is done in such a way that you don't have to pass judgment on yourself because you know that you're doing no harm. Friends, can you really enjoy your freedom if you know that what you're doing is doing damage to your brother or sister in Christ? I hope not. Again, we're not held captive by the weak, but we should love them because Christ died for them. And if we love them, we will be considerate of them. The only way to have true blessedness as we live out our freedoms is through walking in love pursuing peace, building up the body, prioritizing the priorities of the kingdom. True freedom, true freedom will serve Christ and will serve one another within the body of Christ. A life of worship to God in view of God's mercies is a life of of love. This passage is just teaching us in a very concrete way, even though it's hard to understand all of it, it's teaching us the repeated theme of how to love one another in the body. Let love be genuine. 12.9. Not hypocritical. Love one another with a family love, brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor both to the weak and to the strong. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord, living in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Friends, this is what a renewed mind looks like. A mind conformed to the world flouts its freedom. Freedom is the main thing. My personal choice is the main thing for a mind that is conformed to the pattern of this age. But a mind that is transformed by God, that mind will look to the interests of others above ourselves. That mind is a mind under oath to help and to not harm. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us supremely the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also teaches us so much more 
I pray that we would not be a people as a church. A church that loves to study your word. That is divisive on third level issues. I pray you would help us to prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not simply in our doctrine but that it would be felt in our lives, that this church would be a pillar and buttress of the truth, not just the truth in your word of the gospel, but also a display in our life together of the implications of the gospel. Sanctify us completely, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.